Chapter 15 of The Pot Hunters by P. G. Woodhouse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Pot Hunters by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 15. Mr. Roberts explains. Inspector Roberts was standing with his back to the door examining a photograph of the college when the head entered he spun round briskly good evening mr roberts pray be seated you wish to see me the detective took a seat this business of the caps sir ah oh, said the head have you made any progress considerable yes very considerable progress I found out who has told them. You have? cried the head. Excellent. I suppose it was Thompson, then. I was afraid so. Thompson, sir? That was certainly not the name he gave me. Stokes, he called himself. Stokes? Stokes? This is curious. Perhaps if you were to describe his appearance? Was he a tall boy? of a rather slight build. The detective interrupted. Excuse me, sir, but I rather fancy we have different persons in our mind. Stokes is not a boy, not at all. Well over thirty. Red moustache. Height five foot seven, I should say. Not more. Works as a farm hand when required, and thus odd jobs at times that's the man the head's face expressed relief as he heard this description then thompson did not do it after all he said thompson queried mr roberts thompson explained the head is the name of one of the boys at the school i am sorry to say that i strongly suspected him of this robbery a boy at the school curious, unusual, I should have thought, for a boy to be mixed up in an affair like this, though I have known cases. I was very unwilling, I can assure you, to suspect him of such a thing, but really the evidence all seemed to point to it. I am afraid, Mr. Roberts, that I have been poaching in your preserves without much success. Curious thing, evidence, murmured Mr. Roberts, fixing with his eye a bust of Socrates on the writing desk, as if he wished it to pay particular attention to his words. Very curious, very seldom able to trust it. Case the other day, man charged with robbery from the person. With violence, they gave the case to me worked up beautiful case against the man not a hitch anywhere whole thing practically proved man brings forward alibi proves it turned out that at time of robbery he had been serving seven days without the option for knocking down two porters and a guard on the district railway yet the evidence seemed conclusive yes Curious thing, evidence. 
he nodded solemnly at Socrates and resumed an interested study of the carpet. The head, who had made several spirited attempts at speaking during this recital, at least succeeded in getting in a word. You have the cups. No, no caps still missing. Only flaw in the affair. Perhaps I had better begin from the beginning. Exactly. Pray let me hear the whole story. I am more glad than I can say that Thompson is innocent. There is no doubt of that, I hope. Not the least, sir. Not the very least. Stokes is the man. I am very glad to hear it. The inspector paused for a moment, coughed, and drifted into his narrative. So, at once, it was not the work of a practiced burglar. First place, how could regular professional know that all the caps were in the pavilion at all? Quite so. Second place, work very clumsily, then. No neatness. Not the professional touch at all. Tell it in a minute. No mistaking it. Very good. Must, therefore, have been amateur. This night only. And connected with school. Next question. Who? Helped a little there by luck. Capital thing, luck. When it's not bad luck. Was passing by the village inn. You know the village inn, I dare say, sir. The head slightly scandalized explained that he was seldom in the village. The detective bowed and resumed his tale. As I passed the door, I ran into a man coming out in a very elevated, not to say intoxicated state. As a matter of fact, barely able to stand, reeled against the wall and dropped handful of money. I lent helping hand and picked up his money for him. Not my place to arrest drunken men. Constables. Not constable there, of course. Noticed. As I picked the money up, that there was a good deal of it. For ordinary rustic. A very good deal. Sovereign and plenty of silver. He paused, mused for a while, and went on again. Yes, sovereign, and quite ten shillings worth of silver. Now the nature of my profession makes me a suspicious man. It strikes me as curious, not to say remarkable, that such a man should have thirty shillings or more about him so late in the week. And then there was another thing. I thought I'd seen this particular man somewhere on the school grounds. Couldn't recall his face exactly, but just had a sort of general recollection of having seen him before. I happened to have a camera with me. As a matter of fact, I had been taking a few photographs of the place. Pretty place, sir. Very, agreed the head. You photographed yourself, perhaps? No, I do not. Uh, pity. Excellent hobby, however. I took a snapshot of this man to show to somebody who might know him better than I did. This is the photograph. Drunk as a lord, is he not? He exhibited a small piece of paper. The head examined it gravely. 
and admitted that the subject of the picture did not appear to be ostentatiously sober. The sunlight beat full on his face, which wore the intensely solemn expression of the man who, knowing his own condition, hopes, by means of exemplary conduct, to conceal it from the world. The head handed the photograph back without further comment. I gave the man back his money, went on Mr. Roberts, and saw him safely started again, and then I set to work to shadow him. Not a difficult job. He walked very slowly, and for all he seemed to care, the whole of a Scotland Yard might have been shadowing him, went up the street, and after a time turned in at one of the cottages. I marked the place and went home to develop the photograph, took it to show the man who looks after the cricket field. Biffen? Just so, Biffen, very intelligent man, giving me a good deal of help in one way and another all along. Well, I showed it to him, and he said he thought he knew the face, was almost certain it was one of the men at work on the grounds at the time of the robbery, showed it to a friend of his, the other ground man. He thought same, that made it as certain as I had any need for, went off at once to the man's cottage, found him sober, and got the whole thing out of him, but not the caps. He had been meaning to sell them, but had not known where to go wanted combination of good price and complete safety, very hard to find, so had kept cups hidden till further notice. Here they had interrupted. And the cups, where are they? Well, said the detective, slowly, it is this way, we have only got his word to go on as regards the caps. This man, Stokes, it seems is a notorious poacher. The night after the robbery, he took the caps out with him on an expedition in some woods that lie in the direction of Batwick. I think Batwick is the name. Batwick, not Sir Alfred Venner's woods. Sir Alfred Venner, it was, sir. That was the name he mentioned. Stokes appears to have been in the habit of visiting that gentleman's property pretty frequently. He had a regular hiding place, a sort of a store where he used to keep all the game he killed. He described the place to me. It is a big tree on a bank of the stream nearest the high road. The tree is hollow. One has to climb to find the opening to it. Inside are the caps, and, I should say, a good deal of mixed poultry. That is what he told me, sir. I should advise you, if I may say so, to write a note to Sir Alfred Venier, explaining the case, and ask him to search the tree, and send the caps on here. This idea did not appeal to the head at all. Why, he thought bitterly, was this wretched MP always mixed up with his affairs? Left to himself, he could have existed in perfect comfort without either seeing, writing to, 
or hearing from the great man again for the rest of his life. I will think it over, he said, though it seems the only thing to be done. As for Stokes, I suppose I must prosecute. The detective raised a hand in protest. Pardon my interruption, sir, but I really should advise you not to prosecute. Indeed, why? It is this way. If you prosecute, you get the man his term of imprisonment, a year probably. Well and good. But then what happens? After his sentence has run out, he comes out of prison, an ex-convict, tries to get work, no good, nobody will look at him, asks for a job, people lock up their spoons and shout for the police. What happens then? Not being able to get work, tries another burglary, being a clumsy hand at the game, gets cocked again and sent back to prison, and so is ruined and becomes a danger to society. Now, if he is let off this time, he will go straight for the rest of his life, run a mile to avoid a silver cap. He is badly scared, and I took the opportunity of scaring him more, told him nothing would happen this time if the caps came back safely, but that he'd be watched ever afterwards to see if he did not get into mischief. Of course, he won't really be watched, you understand, but he thinks he will, which is better, for it saves trouble. Besides, we know where the caps are. I feel sure he was speaking the truth about them. He was too frightened to invent a story. And here is most of the money. So it all ends well, if I may put it so. My advice, sir, and I think you will find it good advice, is not to prosecute. Very well, said the head. I will not. Very good, sir. Good morning, sir. And he left the room. The head rang a bell. Parker, said he, go across to Mr. Mervale's and ask him to send Thompson to me. It was with mixed feelings that he awaited Jim's arrival. The detective's story had shown how unjust had been his former suspicions, and he felt distinctly uncomfortable at the prospect of the apology which he felt bound to make to him. On the other hand, this feeling was more than equaled by his relief at finding that his faith in the virtue of the genus school perfect, though at fault in the matter of Plunkett, was not altogether misplaced. It made up for a good deal. Then his thoughts drifted to Sir Alfred Veneer. Struggle with his feelings as he might, the head could not endure that local potentate. The recent interview between them had had no parallel in their previous acquaintance, but the head had always felt vaguely irritated by his manner and speech, and he had always feared that matters would come to a head sooner or later. The prospect of opening communication with him once more was not alluring. In the meantime, there was his more immediate duty to be performed, the apology to Thompson, but that reminded him 
the apology must only be of a certain kind. It must not be groveling. And this for a very excellent reason. After the apology must come an official lecture on the subject of betting. He had rather lost sight of that offense in the excitement of the greater crime of which Thompson had been accused and very nearly convicted. Now the full heinousness of it came back to him. Betting. Scandalous. Come in, he cried, as a knock on the door roused him from his thoughts. He turned, but instead of Thompson, there appeared Parker. Parker carried a note. It was from Mr. Mervale. The head opened it. What? he cried as he read it. Impossible. Parker made no comment. He stood in the doorway, trying to look as like a piece of furniture as possible, which is the duty of a good butler. Impossible, said the head again. What Mr. Mervale had said in his note was this, that Thompson was not in the house and had not been in the house since lunch time. He ought to have returned at six o'clock. It was now half past eight, and still there were no signs of him. Mr. Merwale expressed a written opinion that this was a remarkable thing, and the head agreed with him unreservedly. End of chapter 15